A number of weeks ago, I felt the Lord put it on my heart for us to look with great detail into Hebrews 11. We've been teaching you on the benefits of believing in God or the benefits of believing God. And I want us to read, you can read along with me. I'll read verses 5, 6, and 7, and you can follow. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of things of not seen, as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. This is the series, The Benefits of Believing God. This is the third in that series, but I titled this Walking with God. Walking with God. What does it mean to walk with God? How does that look in our Christian life? You may have heard of the famous Walinda family. They were involved with daredevil acts, death-defying feats involved with circuses. They could stretch wires or lines across rivers. and They would get out there and walk across it without any kind of safety net. And this has been going on for at least four or five generations. On one occasion, they stretched a line across the Niagara Falls. A massive amount of the people assembled to watch them. And one gentleman had one of those bicycles that had two seats on it. And he gets up on that sickle, and he kind of rides out there on that line about 10 feet over the Niagara Falls, and the people are clapping and applauding, and he rides back, and he says, How many of you believe that I'm able to do this? And they all shouted, screamed. One man was particularly exuberant, saying, We know you can do it. I've seen you do it. I believe in you. Mr. Walinda, he then proceeded to slowly pedal his way out there into about a third of the way over that Niagara Falls without any safety net. He then pedaled back. He's got two seats on there, the one he's on, then the empty one, and he called for the man that was shouting and saying, we believe that you can do it. I've seen you do it. Before, and he said, where is that gentleman? He waved his hand and said, I'm the one that said, I've seen you do this before. And he said to that gentleman, get on. Well, you think about that. There are a lot of people that believe other people can do it. They just want to see them do it without them having to be involved. And when you read Hebrews chapter 11, we're fascinated and charmed by the beauty of these stories, but very often we don't want to have to pass through these stories with these people to end up with the stories that they have. Hebrews 11, you can see by just about every verse in the chapter, it's about faith, by faith, by faith, through faith, through faith. But it's also a chapter about vision. You can see in verse 10 that Abraham looked for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You can see in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Notice verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. He could see the future in regard to his seed. Look at verse 27. By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him 
who is invisible. God wants you to know that you can have vision with your faith. And your faith coupled with vision can produce some great things. But if this is a chapter about faith and this is a chapter about vision, it's also a chapter about testimonies because verse 2 says, For by it the elders obtained a good report or testimony. It says of Abel in verse 4, God testified of his gifts. It says of Enoch in verse 5, he had this testimony. You can see verse 39, these all having obtained a good report or testimony through faith. What kind of testimony do you have? What would people testify about your life if you passed away today? you gave up the ghost and breathed your last breath, someone had to stand and give some kind of a eulogy about your life, what would they be able to say? Would they be able to testify of your faithfulness, your love for God, your trust in God? When we read this chapter, I'm not sure that we, we realize what all sin costed mankind, the price that really was attached to the iniquity of Adam and Eve. So what do you mean? I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, it altered the nature of man. They were perfect. They fellowshiped with God. God walked through the garden in the cool of the day, but once they ate of the forbidden fruit, the Bible makes it very plain, something in them changed because they realized they were naked and then fear and shame and condemnation came to them. And the Bible says they spent their time hiding amongst the trees and the shrubs to be away from the presence of God and to hide their nakedness, which was exposed now. Sin does that. And there's something naturally in us. There's a natural bent to every human being, a certain inclination towards iniquity that causes us to want to avoid the presence of God. So don't ever be surprised when unbelievers don't wake up on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday and say, I want to go to church. The Bible says, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord except him that has clean hands and a pure heart? When, when people gather together for worship, there's something in the presence of God that lets us know he's different than we are. And there's something in us that, that is different from God. And it's that difference that makes a sinner uneasy. And when we're convicted by God, we, we, we sometimes want to stay away from that. The light that's in God, the light that's in you, causes the darkness in other people to flee. And if that darkness has to leave, it normally takes the people with them. They go in different directions. Sin altered the nature of man, but sin also increased the number of iniquities in the earth. Do you realize that before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no transgression, there were no trespasses, there was no sin? But once they sinned, iniquity multiplied in the earth. Cain killed his own brother Abel. There was no law of Moses, so how did people know what was right and what was wrong? They knew because God told them. When Cain murdered his brother, he knew that what he did was wrong, and when God appeared on the scene and he said, what happened to your brother? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, his blood cries out, and because of what you've done, I'm putting a curse on you. Nobody can take your life. He knew what he did was wrong. How did Cain and Abel know to bring sacrifices and offerings to God. God talked to him. God let him know. And even though man was cut off from the garden, Adam and Eve still taught their children about God. It taught them to bring offerings to God. And that's without any kind of a law. But yet sin continued to increase. You can see that in Genesis 5, Polygamy comes on the scene. It's in Genesis 5 that other sins take place. Another murder takes place. 
people began to learn about how to use musical instruments in Genesis chapter 5, and they learned how to use music to glorify God, but also not to glorify God. Attitudes changed. Different kinds of dispositions manifested themselves to the point that there was sin everywhere. And then the third thing we have to think about what sin costed us, it shortened our days. That's what sin does. Now, you read in Genesis and you think sometimes these folks lived long lives. How in the world could anybody have lived 700 years, 800 years, and so on and so forth? But think about it. If, if there was no sin in this earth, and we don't even have a reference point to understand what it is to be on this planet without seeing things die, but, but if there was no curse on the earth and no sin present in the environment and no law of sin in your body, your physical members wouldn't even corrupt and decay. You would have been just like Adam and Eve. You'd go on and live and live and live and live as God intended when, when they were in the garden. But the moment that sin manifested in this earth, then corruption began to function in this body. And this is why we see ourselves get older. Our hair changes color. Our physical features begin to droop. Everything about us changes. People are taller when they're younger. Then all of a sudden they shrink and get smaller when they're older. Presence of sin. Now, 150 years ago, you could have gone to just about any country in Africa or somewhere in the jungles, and if a person lived to be 55 or 60, they'd be considered an elder because the mortality rates were so high. But you think about it now. Just because nurses and doctors have learned how to wipe a wound or give somebody a shot, or give somebody some tablet that can help them with some kind of bacterial infection in their body. We've got people living regularly now to 90. Yeah, absolutely. And so we look into the new newspaper and it says card shower for so-and-so, celebrating their 100th birthday. Let's give a card shower for so-and-so, celebrating 60 years, 70 years of marriage. People are living a long time. When you consider Hebrews 11, it speaks of a gentleman by the name of Enoch. And the Bible says he was translated that he should not see death. Death was all around him. People were dying, but he didn't die. Let's go to Genesis chapter 5, and let's see what the Scriptures say about this gentleman Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 24 there's one sentence in there that is in both verses. Genesis 5, verse 22. And Enoch walked with God. Verse 24. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. This is a very unique man. If you look at his genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and you begin to work your way through it, starting at verse 18 and come to the end of the chapter, you'll see that Enoch is connected to the two longest living people on the planet. His dad, Jared, lived to be 962 years of age. Enoch's son, Methuselah, lived to be 969 years of age. And the Bible tells us that Enoch was about 365 when he was translated or called away to be with God. But for 300 years that that Enoch was alive, Adam was also still on planet Earth. That means that for three centuries, Enoch had a relationship with Adam. He heard the stories that Adam told. He heard about what went on in the garden. He heard about how wonderful God was. He heard about his and Eve's fall out of the garden. And yet, hearing all of that from his ancestors piqued his interest, and he walked with God. And I don't doubt that Enoch was a man that wanted to be around Adam and other people that had a relationship with God. This is how you learn about God. I think all of us should value and esteem our elders. Young people, listen to me. 
You should be very careful to be interested in the stories of not just your parents, but your grandparents, and if possible, your great-grandparents. You can learn about God from them. You can hear stories of how people were born again, hear stories of how people started with nothing and God provided for them and blessed them, and it can increase your faith in God. You spend time wanting to learn this stuff from Adam. Do you spend time with older people asking questions? Did you do that when you were younger? I spent the bulk of my youth asking older preachers about the things of God. And even now when I get around older people and we're talking about the, the, the Lord, I want to hear testimonies. Tell me how you were saved. Tell me some of the things God did for you. Tell me what it was like when you were walking with God or traveling with God or so on and so forth because I'm interested in things that are going to fortify me in my faith and keep me from being corrupted by a culture that isn't interested in God. Enoch was surrounded by giants and people who didn't care about God. But two times in this chapter it says Enoch walked with God. Not with the giants, not with the unbelievers, not with the skeptics, not with the agnostics. Here was the man that was meditating on the things that Adam and other folks were saying, and he was reliving that every day in his, in his faith with God. That's important. And he learned about not only the Garden of Eden, but he learned about the nature of God. What is God like? He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's good. He's a God that loves us so much that he reaches out in order to be a blessing to us. He learned about the nature of God. Are you interested in the character of God? What his traits are like? If God really is a God that is just or is he a God that's fair? He's more just than he is fair. You know, parents and adults are under the impression that if one kid gets a piece of candy, then the other three siblings ought to get a piece of candy. But God doesn't always operate like that. God will give somebody something and not turn around and give it to somebody else. He'll bless, he'll bless Jacob, but Esau won't get the same blessing sometimes. He takes the children of Israel as the apple of his eye, but he doesn't take the other nations of the earth in that same way. God's not a respecter of persons. So just because you say, well, God, you have to be fair. He doesn't have to be fair. He has to be just. He has to be righteous in how he deals with you, but he doesn't just have to be fair. This man learned about the nature of God. He came to understand the ways of God and the things that God would do. And when he, when he learned that Adam and Eve had been put out of that garden, he knew that God was a holy God and we should have a little bit of reverence with respect to him. Now, when he heard about the garden, I can tell you what he didn't do. He did not try to go back and find that garden and try to reenter it. How do I know that? Because when Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, the Lord put two cherubims there to guard the way so that nobody else could get back in. So if the garden was still in existence there, he would never have gotten beyond those cherubims. But do you realize it is not God's intention for you and for me to live in the past? You can't go back to what was great and what was grand and what was glorious. You've got to have God do something for you right now. I'm glad God did something for your grandparents and God moved in your parents' lives, but what is God doing for you? What kind of vital relationship with God are you establishing? Because you can't live off of everybody else's stories, and God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. can't live in the past. Sometimes people think back to past revivals and past moves of God and things that the Lord has done, and, and, and I do that often. I love to read about those things, but I do know that my desire is not to have what they had back in the 40s or back in the 20s. I want something that's vibrant and something that's flourishing and something that's powerful for the 21st century. I need something right here for the Republican Valley region where the Lord can pour out his Holy Ghost and see people dancing like calves let out of a stall and folks baptized with the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues and cripples walking and lives changed and people crying out to God in repentance and, Oh, God, save my soul. You can't be looking back at somebody else's garden. We need our own garden. And we need, to, we need the Lord to do something for us. So this man was not looking back 
towards the path, Enoch had something else on his mind. Now the Bible does say that in, in the days of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, so the name of the Lord was not known at that time. So here's what Enoch did do. He knew that name and he called on God. He had a relationship with God. That's what Enoch did. The Bible says in Romans, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what happened to Enoch. He walked with God. Do you call on that name? Do you walk with God in such a way that throughout the week his name emerges on your lips as a, as, as a, as a whisper of prayer rather than as a substitute for a cuss word? Do you use the name of Jesus because it is able to bring assistance and help? Whosoever call on the name of the Lord. Enoch understood that man walked with God. This is walking with God. Walking with God means I'm going to be different and distinct from the other people who don't know the king. But also, Enoch did not do anything that diminished the holiness of God before his eyes. Now let's remember, there's sin and all these directions, and the trend of the society in which he lived was moving further and further away from God. But yet you can still see he had this testimony that he pleased God. Everybody didn't have that testimony. He had that testimony. What does it look like for you to please God? Do you have a fully consecrated life to the Lord? Have you wholly surrendered all unto God. Are you the kind of person that tries to walk as close to the world as possible, but yet far enough from God to where you can still barely hear his voice? Or are you the kind of person that's trying to walk as far away from the world as you can, but as close to God as you can? Enoch walked with God. People read these stories of Smith Wigglesworth and other people that raised the dead. People that literally had been dead. And it came back to life when they rebuked death and told death to leave. And they say, I want that kind of faith, but you've got to live that kind of life. He was the kind of man who wouldn't even let a newspaper in his house because he said the thing is filled with lies, and I don't want lies in my house. See, sometimes we say we want faith like these people in the Bible, but are we willing to live the life that they lived in order to have the trust and confidence in God that they had? What is your walk with God like? Is it a consecrated life? Or do you just do enough to maintain a conscience that doesn't experience a whole lot of conviction? Are you entirely sold out to God so that God can do wonderful things for you? Or are you just a person that's gone along with a mediocre walk with God, an average lifestyle, but it doesn't bother you at all that maybe you haven't witnessed to anybody in a week or a month or a year. And it doesn't bother you at all that in your walk with God that, that, that you don't ever worship God and sing and glorify his name. What kind of a walk do you have? Enoch had a walk that pleased God. Are we pleasing him? That's the question. I don't mean to imply that in Enoch's generation, he was the only one that was walking with God. There were plenty of people, I'm sure, who died in faith. Yeah, I don't think he was the only one. But there were plenty of people who were unbelievers and weren't walking with the king. And sometimes people who have faith do see death, even though Enoch didn't see it. Sometimes Christians who love God lose their lives because of their faith. That's why you see later in the chapter said, these all died in the faith. Nigeria, a couple of years ago, was a man that had a nice church and started a private school and had a number of children that were in that school. I say a number, he had more than a hundred he was a former Muslim, but became a Christian. He knew that the Muslims in his village were going to attack him because they had been threatening him publicly. So he took his wife and got out of there as fast as he could, got her to safety, his own kids to safety. But the next night, in the middle of the night, he returned because he wanted to ensure that all of his students were adequately evacuated. 
Well, when he got there, he didn't realize that his adversaries had been waiting for him, and the Muslims chased him with a machete and hacked him to death, left his body out in the streets. How did he die? In faith? Loved God? Yeah, that's how he died. Now, somebody might say, well, I don't think you should tell stories like that because it doesn't put certain people in a favorable light. But if I don't tell stories like that, then the decedent's relatives that are yet alive don't get their story told. Because the idea of many people is don't tell any story or don't share any testimony that might seem to demonize somebody. But if that was the case, we wouldn't even have a Bible. Stephen was stoned to death. How did he die? In faith. The apostle Paul was stoned. They left him for dead. He was still in faith. And when we look at the scriptures, this is what we discover, that to walk with God means you have to be willing to maintain your faith despite the trends that are changing. Now, you don't have to like this. You don't even have to agree with this. But all you would have to do is ask your grandparent, if they're still around, ask them if Christianity is treated today in America the way that it was 60 years ago. And you'd hear the answer would be no. And if if you think it's trending unfavorably towards Christianity now, imagine being a Christian today in China. Yeah. Imagine being a Christian in parts of Russia, parts of South America, where churches are firebombed and huts are burned down simply because people have have faith in God. All I'm telling you is that Enoch walked with God, and if he walked with God, we have to do the same thing. We don't have a choice. We we can backslide. We can fall away from God. but But if it ever came to it in this nation where somebody were to say to you, you don't have a right to have a Bible in your home unless it's a certain kind of Bible, what would you do? He said, Pastor, there's no place on the planet that's like that. Go to China. You're only allowed to have the Bible that the government prints and says you can have. Yeah. Don't be in a Muslim country where Christianity is outlawed if it's even discovered that you have a Bible. You can end up in jail. But I hear these voices from time to time that say, Christians, they're no different than the Taliban, thinking you've lost your mind. You've never lived under the Taliban, if you think that. Christians are are like Paris. And with all of that going on, there are many Christians falling apart and nervous and all filled with anxiety over what's taking place. I can tell you what the answer is right now. Keep walking with God. Keep walking with God. Don't change at all. Now, we're out here in a, in a world where, you know, Christianity still has a modicum of a voice in these small towns. But there's still enough people that don't know God that's doing what they can to suppress that voice. But the Christians have to continue to open up their mouth and speak and be vocal about what they believe. Enoch walked with God. Now it says in Hebrews 11 verse 5 about Enoch that he was translated that he should not see death. And that word translated just simply means literally that he was repositioned. He was taken out of this world, put in another world. But your faith in God can prevent you from encountering death sometimes. I think there have been plenty of occasions where because someone believed in God, they chose not to go with certain people who were going to get in trouble or chose not to go to a certain place where they knew there would be trouble. And because of their faith in God, they were delivered and spared the trouble that could have come to them. Yeah. Enoch was translated that he should not see death And he wasn't found because God translated him. One day he was walking along the earth. The next day he disappeared and people didn't know where he went. They thought maybe he was hiding up in the cave. Other people probably thought he had disappeared and went to another country. But the man had been translated to heaven and was in the presence of God. Do you know that one day a company of believers is going to experience that? 
First Thessalonians chapter 4, one day Jesus will descend from heaven with the shout, the sound of the trumpet. The dead in Christ shall rise up, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. There will be a company of people like Enoch who experience what Enoch experienced simply because we're walking with God. We're walking with God. And we're walking out of step with the band and the mob and everybody else. My pastor used to tell a story about a little kid that was in one of them little children's parades. This is back when in the city of Cleveland, at a certain time of the year, they'd get all the kids together from the different uh, elementary schools and then marching through the downtown part of, of Cleveland. And so literally you'd have thousands of kids out there just marching, just having the time of their life, and they're looking at all the people standing along the side of the road, and they're just marching. They got the music going, so they taught the kids how to walk in step. Well, my, my, my pastor said that one time they noticed everybody's walking, uh, watching these little kids go by, and there was one kid in the midst of all of these class students who was just out of step with everybody. And they never could figure out what in the world was going on with this boy until they finally got to the end and realized that while everybody else was listening to the sound of the drums and, and the other ones that were playing the music, the boy had, he had little headphones in his ears and had a Walkman was listening to it. He was marching to a sound that other people couldn't hear. You do know that we are walking with God and we hear voices that other people don't hear. There's a spirit that guides us, the Holy Ghost of God. There's a book that leads us. And I'm telling you, folks, there's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist in America that wouldn't want to have you on their couch to try to figure out why you live the way you live. We hear things they don't hear. See? That's exactly what it is. Before this translation, he had this testimony. He pleased God. Do we please him? Does our lifestyles please him how passionate are you about god how concerned are you about your relationship with god and you can see the last sentence of verse five says that he pleased god so that takes you into verse six without faith it's impossible to please him that basically means without the faith that enoch had it's impossible to please him you got to live like enoch did how did he live separate from the world consecrated unto the world, away from the world, I should say. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians, verse chapter 6, 17, that says, Be ye separate. Come out from among them, saith God. See? Be ye separate from the world. I'll be a father to you. You'll be a child to me. What, what does that mean? That means separation is important. Now, the degree of separation that you have to practice in your life will be worked out with God as he deals with you in your heart. But you have to know that there are elements of this world that will do everything they can to destroy your relationship with God. Be ye separate. And as you go from faith to faith and glory to glory and grow in grace and in knowledge, God will say to you in this season of your life, okay, you put up, I put up with that back here, but now you're going to this next level. You're moving into this new season. You're going to have to leave that behind because where I want to take you and what I want to do for you is not going to happen unless you let go of this. And then the moment you let go of that and you walk through this season and you have a period of time where God will start working on you again and he'll say, look, I want you to separate yourself from that, but you're separating yourself unto me. And in this season of your life, to get to where you're going now, you're going to have to separate and, and detach yourself from this. This is what Christian life is all about. And for the people who love entanglements, being entangled with the affairs of the world and so much like that, these things can become a bondage if you don't know how to handle it. Now, if you've got wisdom, then it won't become a bondage. But God wants you to understand, you have to have faith that pleases him, and the kind of faith you have to have is to know that if I come to God believing, he'll reward me. He's a giver. He's a big giver. But verse 7 then speaks to you about a man named Noah. Now, he, he's an interesting character because in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, it says, I've looked at all the earth 
man has corrupted himself, and the end of all flesh has come before me. And this is where God tells Noah, trouble is coming. So what does God do? First, he looks at the sin on the earth. Secondly, he gives a warning of impending doom. Thirdly, the people, Noah and his family, are to prepare. And while they're preparing, the fourth day, they're to proclaim to everybody that all this judgment is coming and that you should serve a righteous God. Now I want you to imagine for a second being in a world where, like Noah, the imaginations of man were evil continually. Now we can, we can somewhat envision that if you think of it this way. Sometimes when I'm traveling, I'll go into a bookstore in an airport, and I'll look at the fly leaves on the cover of the books, and I'll read sometime in the fiction section, sometime in the nonfiction section. And, and one of the questions that I ask myself sometimes is, how in the world did they even come up with this plot? What kind of a mind could go to dark places like, like this and dream up this, you know? And and sometimes if I'm in a library, I'm having to do some research for something, and I'm looking around, uh, just thousands of books in every direction, and I'm looking at older books that are 100 years old or better, then I'll be over here looking at some of the modern magazines and things like that, and I'll look at some of the journals, uh, some of the professional journals, and I'll say, how in the world did anybody come up with that opinion, that belief? And if you're watching television sometimes, you know, maybe trying to watch Andy Griffith. And then here come your commercials. And then on your commercials with, with Andy Griffith, then you've got men just like ladies, man, drag queens coming down the aisle, loud colors. And, and I look at that and I wonder why, why would they put a commercial like that in between scenes of a show like Andy Griffith? It's because they want to pervert the minds of those watching a channel that's dealing with family. In Noah's day, the imaginations of man were evil continually. You have to think deeply about that, continually. That means there was no let up. That's why in Noah's day, only eight people were delivered. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Noah, prepare an ark. So here's a man with whatever makeshift tools he had. Had to start felling timber all over the place. Then had to start planing that wood to get it into, into shape so he could use it and make an ark. And whoever is helping him, however long it took, we know it took at least a century. Now you think about that. We complain about how long it takes to put on an annex or a building. A hundred years, Noah and his family out there swinging axes and hammers and building and preaching swinging them hammers and axes and preaching. And people walking by, and, and they don't even know what's going on. They see him cutting down all them trees. They say, Noah, what's you and your family doing out there? Well, we're, we're building something. Well, what are you building? Why are you building it? Because you folks won't live right. God said there's judgment coming, and I'm building something that's going to prepare uh, salvation for my family. And they just looked at him and said, you, got, you lost your mind if you honestly think God's going to judge us. Don't you know God put Adam and Eve out of the garden? And when he put them out of Eden, he judged Adam and Eve once and for all. There is no future judgment for any of us. He laid it on all of them. And that's how some people think even today. That's how some people think. God is such a God of love. There's no judgment coming. There's no difficulties coming. If the church is called away, there still is not going to be any trouble down here. There won't be the opening of any seven seals of a book. In the book of Revelation, they say there's no trouble at all. And people are just skating along like there's nothing going to happen. And the whole time they're skating along, God's waiting on a company of people to be like Noah, working to try to save their family. Yeah, so he's out there building, and, and the people don't know what it is, but they're mocking him, they're teasing him, he's preaching, and then eventually folks are looking and they can see, this looks like a big boat. This, why in the world is this man building a boat? I mean, the world's first ship captain. Why is he building that? 
But there are a lot of things that we as Christians do that the world doesn't understand. They don't understand. When you're working on the ark of salvation in your home, you've got to be like Noah and be consistent. You can't do it for six months and then fall away for a year and then come back and do it a month and then fall away for four months. You've got to be consistent week after week. When the kids come along and you're going to have devotion with the kids, be consistent with the kids and have devotion with the kids. And make sure that when you're working on your soul salvation that you're consistent about it. And if you're going to be determined to walk with God, don't be inconsistent. So he's building, they're laughing, and then one day he finally gets that whole thing done, and he's preached a lot of sermons in a hundred years, and with that thing finally done, can you imagine him walking around that big old thing? And he's just looking at it. Why in the world would God tell me to build this? How in the world did he ever create a ladder for himself? I don't know. But I know this. God said to Noah, it's almost time. I want you to gather up animals, male and female, two by two. Bring them right on up here into the ark. He had already made provision for that because God had spoken to it and gave him the dimensions of the ark. Now think about this. Either Noah was the world's greatest trapper, Or God had to bring a whole lot of animals to him. Yeah. Because he brought them on to that ark. And then in the end, the scripture says, God said, Noah, get your family, come into the ark. They got into the ark, and once they got in, the Bible says God shut them in. They didn't close the door. God closed them in the ark. Once they were in, they were safe and secure. And then it started to rain. And we've been praying for it. Forty days and forty nights it rained. And can you imagine forty days, forty nights of the kind of rain that came? You've seen what happens out here. If we get a tornado that passes through here, it can drop forty-some inches of water in less than thirty minutes. Yeah. Well, it started to rain. And, of course, I'm sure that when he was on the inside... And it started raining, and people looked at that thing and knew it was sealed because he used pitch and mud and everything and putting it all together. Folks started assembling around that thing, trying to figure out where's the entrance, how to get in there. And there are folks on the outside saying, Noah, open up. He didn't open up that thing at all. Noah, open up the door. Why is he crying out? Because the rain's coming down. And by the time we get to the 40 days and 40 nights, we get to the end of that, that water that was on the outside that pretty much has drowned and destroyed vegetation and people, that same water that was destructive to everybody else was water that bore up that ark and saved him above everything else. Bore him above all the tribulation above all of God's judgment. And that's why I said right now we're preaching Jesus Christ. We're preaching Jesus Christ because one day the sound is going to come when the judgment is going to begin and the church is going to be caught up. And when we're caught up, there's going to be judgment down here on planet Earth. And at the end of that period of time, we come back with Jesus to reign for a thousand years, as the Bible teaches. Yeah. Now consider a year later, when Moses came, excuse me, when Noah came out of that ark, now you know that's a long time to be trapped with some animals. It's a long time. For you that aren't particularly animal lovers like I am not, that's a long time to be locked inside with a bunch of critters. And I can't even imagine what that thing smelled like. But on the inside, he's singing, What a Mighty God We Serve. Praising the king. On the outside, there's wailing, there's screaming, there's yelling. And when he finally exits the ark, there's not a grandmother that's survived in a cave. There's not a baby hanging from a branch anywhere. It's a brand new world. And God says to Noah, replenish the earth. He becomes a new Adam. His wife becomes a new Eve. And with his sons and daughter-in-law, they repopulate the earth all over again. But you know what Genesis says about Noah in his testimony? He uses these exact words. Noah walked with 
God. He walked with God. You've got to make a choice. What do you really want your walk with God to look like? Are, are you so careful that you're sensitive to the, to the convictions and the wooings of the Holy Spirit, and if there's anything you're possibly doing that could grieve the Holy Spirit, you step away from that and say, oh, God, I don't want to be doing that. But when you find out there's something that really pleases him, do you, do you launch in with both feet and say, this, oh God, is what I know stirs your heart to walk with God. And this is what the king, king desires of us. Noah heard the warning, preached the message of judgment that was coming, and he prepared an ark because he refused to be intimidated by all the other people. Now, in closing, I'll tell you this about a man's walk with God. A number of years ago, Tiffany and I drove to Texas to go to a preacher's convention in Beaumont. And there were probably going to be anywhere from 13, 1,400 ministers at this meeting. So we stopped off to visit some friends in Dallas, and they, they really enjoy our fellowship and, and, and like having us around. But, but they said to me, they said, Daryl, why don't, you know, I've got a bunch of points and stuff from the airlines. Let me fly you down to Beaumont. You go to the meeting. We'll get you a rental car. But let us keep Tiffany here in Dallas with us. I don't know why they didn't want to keep me, but... They said, we want to keep, keep Tiffany here, and so that's what they did. So I, I ended up going down there and got a rental car, had the good time at the meeting and met with some other friends of mine, and it was just a very tiring thing because we had 5 a.m. prayer meeting, 1,000 preachers there early in the morning talking to God till about 7 a.m. Then we had four sessions, three or four sessions each day, and so literally at the end of the day, when you have that final meeting, everybody's sitting around the hotel lobby. We're talking fellowship until midnight. So I wasn't getting to sleep till 12, getting up by 4. At the end of the meeting, I was exhausted. So I go back to the airport in Beaumont to make the flight to Dallas. And I get, I, I get on the plane and go to where I'm supposed to be seated, somewhere on this side as the people are looking at me. And I sit down, and I'm just so exhausted, I'm just ready to go to sleep. And after I've been there with people coming back and forth, putting their stuff in the overhead compartment, then the stewardess comes to me and says, Sir, if you don't mind, would you, would you consider moving, changing seats from here to somewhere else because we have someone else that has a physical problem, and this here would be the perfect place for them. I said, well, where do you want me to move? I had a good aisle seat, leg room. I turned around and looked, and, and there's a, a seat next to the window. But in the aisle, there's this, this African-looking gentleman, and he, he's got a big smile on his face, just like that. And I, I thought, okay, well, no, I really don't want to move, but I, I'll go ahead and move. So I moved, and, of course, I got to my spot. I sat down. On the inside, and I had my hat, and I kind of pulled my hat down because I was sleepy, and I just kind of sat there, closed my eyes. But you ever been somewhere, somebody's next to you, and it's almost like you can feel them looking at you? <laughs> I mean, it was like they were just coming at me, and, and I'm sitting there. So I opened up my eyes, and sure enough, he's looking at me, got a big smile on his face. <laughs> and I can see I'm going to have to have a conversation here. So I finally I said to the guy, I said, how are you doing? Where, where are you coming from? Where are you going? And he told me, and I said, well, I'm a pastor in Nebraska, and um, I just come from a preacher's convention, and now I'm going back home, meet my wife. We're going to head back home. He said, well, you know, I'm a pastor too. I said, really? I said, where do you pastor? He said, I'm down in Arizona, I think is where he was. He said, my, my bishop in Zimbabwe wanted to start some churches in America, so he sent me as a missionary from America, so I'm down there in that town in Arizona, and he said, tell me something, where you pastor in Nebraska, are you in the city, you're in a small town? I'm in a small village right on the Nebraska-Kansas line. He said, well, where you live, he said, do, do the people look like you? I said, well, well, well 
No, they don't. I mean, if if you mean color, but I said they've got two eyes and a nose and everything else. But, but And so he started asking questions. He said, can you tell me something? I, I've been wanting to know this. He said, I pastor down there, and I've got a church, but they're mostly African immigrants. And I'm African. And he said, what do I need to do to get people to come to my church that don't look like me? People that may be Hispanic, people that may be white or whatever. And I said, well, I said, I, I guess I've never really thought about that in all the years that I've been up here. But I said, I could tell you this. I said, number one, I said, in your music, try not to be ethnocentric with your music. Try to have music that will appeal to everybody. So I said, whether you like it or not, I said, you're going to have some people like Southern Gospel. You need some Southern Gospel. So you're going to have people that like contemporary music. You're going to need some contemporary music. Some people are going to like a praise team or choir child. Learn, learn to have whatever is suitable and available to you within the people that you have. So I went through all of that. Then I told him, in your preaching, I said, don't try to be ethnocentric with your preaching. I said, if you want to attract people of other, uh, other backgrounds, you don't need somebody with an organ on the background, then you say something, then they play the organ, then you say something again, then they play the organ. You don't have to do all of that. And we had this good, good, good little talk. Now, the, the flight from Beaumont to Dallas can't be 20, 25 minutes. So we're getting ready to descend. And I said, I so enjoyed talking with you, and I did. And then here's what he told me. He said, you know, when you got on the airplane, I knew you when you got on board. I said, well, how in the world did you know me? I said, I wasn't even supposed to be on this plane. My wife and I were supposed to drive down here. He said, well, I've been praying about the things I talked to you about. I've been praying about these things for months. And he said, not too long ago, I had a dream. He said, in that dream, I was on the airplane, and he said, saw a man get on that airplane, and he ended up sitting right down next to me, and he answered all the questions of my heart as far as building a good church. He said, when you walked on that plane and you sat down up there, I knew you were the man. I knew you were coming here. So, folks, I'm telling you, when you walk with God, you don't know what God will show you, and you don't know what God will do. But God can do outstanding things for you. And if you look back over your life, you'd, be, you'd probably be astonished at the number of people God brought into your life for a season, and you never even saw it coming. You never saw that blessing. So, yeah, don't, 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 uh, don't be charmed by this world. Stay with God and walk with him. Yeah. I'll ask at this time if Barry and Don could get us ready with, with the communion. But in light of what we said this evening, let's examine ourselves in the faith. What is your heart's condition this morning? Are you walking with God fully, fully controlled by him? Is there anything between you and God that needs to be dealt with today? Is there anything between you and a neighbor in here that needs to be dealt with today. I honestly believe that God is in this place to meet every need, you know, to meet every need. So what we're going to do is I'll pray, and then as, as we pray, and I, we'll take this, and then, then at the end we'll share in this as a family. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that Jesus came into this world and he died on that cross for our sins. And Lord, even though he cried out, it is finished on the cross, we know that that really was only the beginning for what you had for your believing church. And now, God, as we sit here today in your presence, having heard the word, search our hearts. If there's anything between you and I, please forgive us, O oh God. And we have any issues with anybody in this room, oh God, we want to make it right, right now, oh God. Because God, we do not want to stretch forth our hands and partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy fashion. Thank you all.